Welcome to the Principles of Success, interviewing the experts, and today's book review is Exposed, The Financial Matrix, QAD. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So this book was actually released last year and I read it last year. I just recently reread it super fast to just kind of get a reminder for making this episode. And when I read it, I was kind of simultaneously laughing and getting really pissed off because I already knew a lot of the information. And the reason why I was laughing is because the entire book is about a subject that in my book, The Blueprint of Wealth, which you should go check out, link below. Um, in my book, I spend maybe one or two paragraphs on this particular subject. And he spends an entire book breaking down how bad we are really being screwed. So, oh, also, warning. If you are a closed-minded leftist authoritarian, you're not going to like this episode. So I suggest that you turn it off. This book was written by a billionaire libertarian. So he's very wealthy, he's very successful, and he is very anti-authoritarian. So with that disclaimer, let's dive into the book. First off, fractional banking. And what is fractional banking? So fractional banking is actually really old. Um, and what fractional banking is, is so you deposit your money into your bank account. And so you deposit $1. And the bank then is able to lend out $10. They have a reserve, a fraction of the money, which they can then create new debt to be able to make money off of that loan and it is supported by the fraction that is your dollar that is held in reserve. That is what fractional banking is. And because of this banking strategy, our economies are a game of musical chairs. As long as not everybody demands all of their money at once, banks can shift the money around to keep things from falling apart. And when things don't go good, well then the, and everybody demands their money, well then the banks are screwed. So what was their solution to this? Make it bigger. Not stop the stupid practice of musical chair money laundering, it was to make it bigger. And that's where the central banking comes from, and that's what I really talk about is central banking. Um, and what central banking is, is the banks have a bank, and that in the U.S., that's the Federal Reserve. And when the banks need money, they borrow money from the Federal Reserve. And by the way, the Federal Reserve is just a name. It is a private bank that, they, that when they created it and signed it into law, that they named it Federal to basically placate the people so that way they wouldn't get too hung out of shape, but it is a private bank. There is nothing 
federal about it. So that's what fractional banking is. Is It's a game of musical chairs of money that they are loaning out to generate more money for themselves, and when the music stops, things fall apart. This is what creates the boom and bust cycles, where we have a... Markets aren't supposed to naturally crash. Markets are supposed to stay stable. But because we use fractional banking, and because it is now a global centralized center banking system, the whole world goes through ups and downs. When it was just small little fractional banks, um, when the bank failed, people just lost their money and they strung up the banker because they were pissed at him for losing all their money. And it was just that town that got screwed. Now the whole world gets screwed when things go south. And to make matters worse, we do not have actual money. So actual money, for most of human history, was some sort of physical object. In a lot of the old world, that was valuable coins. In the new world, they would use things like cocoa beans. But he doesn't really talk about that in this book, so we'll just leave it. Um, and now let's shift topics a little bit before we go back to um, fractional banking. So... There is two types of inflation. There is debasing and inflation. So what debasing is, it is the old school version of inflation. Because the world used coins to generate more money for the governmental elites to siphon off more money, they would reclaim the old coins and then melt them down and add more base metals to the valuable metals. So I don't, I want to say it was Rome, but I don't think it was, but we'll just use Rome because everybody knows Rome. Uh, when Rome first started, their coins were like 90% silver. It was super, super high percentage of silver. By the end, their coins were like 0.5% silver because each time a new emperor, king came into power, he would recall all the coins under the framework of we need to print my face on it now and then every time they collected the coins they would add more base metals so that way they could make more coins so that way the government had more money and then send the coins back out and they were less valuable which caused inflation that was actually better than what we have now which is completely intangible currency that at for a long time was tied to the dollar so what they could do instead of having to melt down all the coins is they just would decrease the amount of precious metal to the equivalent of the dollar. And uh, that worked somewhat. They could create a little bit of inflation. And by the way, big government and big business love inflation. Uh, it, it allows them to use money now, collect, go into debt, and then pay it off with other people's money and the people get screwed. So they love inflation. This isn't a tragic accident. This is a purposeful way of siphoning off money, which I talk a little bit more about in How I Tax Thee, which is another book that will piss you off. Anyway, so now in modern times, or relatively modern times, we had the US dollar, I'll just use dollars, um, and it was tied to like a pound of gold. I don't remember the exact amount of gold, but it was tied to a specific weight of gold. And so instead of going and trading your dollar, instead of trading gold coins, which are heavy, you could just exchange your dollars. And then the bankers could 
print more dollars. And as long as everybody didn't call in all their gold at once, it was fine. Back to the musical chairs. But then the gold standard was removed. And all of a sudden, we are now trading worthless paper with nothing tying to it to make it actually worth anything. And it is now a fiat currency. So let's rewind a little bit and go through a quick history lesson. Historically, we use gold and silver as coinage, and you can only debase it so much before people say this isn't real money anymore. Then bankers come up with the idea of, instead of exchanging gold coins, you put the gold, which is heavy, in our vault, and we'll give you paper that is essentially a IOU this much gold. And then, because paper is lighter, and because it is tied to the gold and it's worth that gold, people have no problem exchanging that pieces of paper. Well, fast forward a little bit more, you, they then come up with the fractional banking of, well, this gold is just sitting here and people are just exchanging the paper. They don't know that we're not actually having all the gold tied to one specific piece of paper. Plus, what if that paper got destroyed? We don't know. So they start fractionally doing it. And the super greedy ones, they're the ones that really got screwed up because they would do like $100 bills to one piece of gold. And that's when things got sketchy for them. Next comes the central bank, 1913. Uh, the American Dream is sold out by Woodrow Wilson, I think. Yeah. And he creates the Federal Reserve, the IRS, and the income tax. The American Dream is sold out. Fast forward again. 1970. We have a central bank using fractional banking, using money that is backed by gold. 1970 comes along. Wait, I fast forward too much. Backtrack. World War One, World War Two happens. All sorts of lovely things happen in World War One, including the downfall of most monarchs, which we'll come back to in a sec. World War Two, the end of World War Two specifically, the US doll instead of having every individual currency that each individual government uses backed by gold, they make the US dollar backed by gold and or they make the US dollar the reserve currency of the world, and the US dollar is still backed by gold. Fast forward to 1970. 1970, the gold standard is dropped from America. So now we have a fiat currency that is controlled by a central bank that can print at will using fractional banking that is backing the other banks of other countries with their fiat money that is not backed by gold. Fast forward to 2021, 80% of all dollars printed in the world, or printed in history, are printed in 2021. Well, let that sink in for a sec. It hasn't quite happened yet, but in 2021, effectively, the entire world, the money that you're making as a wage slave, an ink where you get paid a set amount for the work that you do, almost got completely halved. It hasn't sunken in yet, and the, the rampant inflation that's around the corner hasn't hit yet, but it's coming. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So that's the first part of this book. Aren't you so happy that I am talking about this book to you? So now let's go back to the World War I with the fall of monarchs. So historically, how monarchs could essentially, or how governments could essentially screw over the banks was it was a monarch. He would borrow a bunch of money from the bankers. And then because he was king, he, he could just say, screw you. And then the bankers couldn't really do much. But now that we're in a democracy, and don't get me wrong, democracies are good and but even with non-democracies, there's a lot of no longer monarchs. It's still nations with temporary leaders. Instead of the monarch borrowing the money from the banker and it being in the monarch's name, it is now in the public's name. The king of England isn't borrowing the money. England is borrowing the money. And so even when the king passes or let's say there was a revolution or something... Actually, I guess revolution would cancel it out, maybe. But when the president steps down, the president borrows all these money, all this money to try and do the things that he wants to do, line his friends' pockets. When he steps down, he doesn't have to pay that debt. The U.S. has to pay that debt. So that made the bankers very happy. And now let's talk about the Federal Reserve, which is basically the big granddaddy bank. It is the bank of banks, and it is... And because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency, it is the bank of banks of nations. So, the Federal Reserve has a monopoly on the world's fiat currency. They control the money. They are in charge of the money. And because they are in control of the money, they are able to buy out everybody. First, they bought out academia. You don't want economists criticizing your central banking system that's making you tons and tons of money. So any economist that goes against your rule of thought goes bye-bye. And that's why when you're taught econ in college, you are only taught one school of thought. You're not taught the other schools, at least not very often. Um, and it's the school of thought that government spending is good and that central banking is good. So first they bought the uh, academia. They bought all the scientists. You don't get funding if you go against their opinion. You get discredited if you go against their opinion. And there will always be peons willing to do the bidding of their masters for an extra bone. Next, they bought out the media, so that way they can control the school of thought. Next, they bought the politicians. And we all know that the politicians are bought. This is not a conspiracy, can't believe he thinks this. This is a well-established knowledge that all the politicians are bought. And in America, they've split the party between the two sides and make sure that the different sides are arguing for one half of spending. The right side is military spending and the left side is welfare spending. Regardless, it's still spending, which makes the banks very happy. Next, big business hopped into the fray because they like the big banks that give them lots of money, and by using the big banks and the politicians, they can then squash competition, which means more profit for them, and less chance of them 
having to innovate to fight the free economy. And then this is a quote from the book. Economics is not neutral, is not morally neutral. The people's rights are either protected or violated. Either we are living in a, what he calls the golden rule economy, which is free market economy, where people can exchange and innovate and bring products to the market, or we live in a power economy. And for pretty much all of human history, we always live in a power economy, a force economy, where the elites get a free ride off of the working man's back. And this is how Marxists play into um, people's anger, because they'll use the bourgeoisie versus the... I forget the other one, but it's basically the rich versus the poor. Um, and that's like the only thing Marcus, Marxists got right, is that the powerful will always try and get a free lunch. And you can't get a free lunch without taking it from somebody else. The difference between a street gang and a tyrannical government is size. There's only been one point in history where anyone was truly free, and it was about from 1776 to about 1913. Now, granted, not everybody was free, even not in America, not everybody was free, but it was the only time in history where f truly free market capitalism existed, and it made the powerhouse U.S. And now we're kind of diving into the second part of this book, and I'm kind of going already super long, but the second part of this book really talks about how there's power economies versus um, golden rule economies, free market economies, and that there's only two. There's so socialism, Marxism, um, feudalism, authoritarian states, all of those are force economies, power economies where the elites benefit by taxing away the common man. And there's free market economies, which rarely have existed in history, and today only partially exists in America and in a couple other places. Regulations stop competition, so the more regulated the market is, the less free market it is, and the bigger businesses can get. And when big businesses, when you add on like a, let's say a 10,000 tax to a big business, is like, oh, sure. A little business is, well, I'm out of business. So, moving on. Because I'm out of time, and I really want to talk about this one point. There are three ways to enslave the masses. There is labor enslavement, full-fledged slavery. There is land slavery, serfdom, feudalism. Oh, by the way, full-fledged slavery, that also includes Marxist ideologies like socialism and communism. So there's slavery, socialist ideas, and slavery. There's, and that's labor, labor slavery. There is a land slavery, which is serfdom and feudalism, and housing shortages. And then there's money slavery, debtors, wage slaves, income taxes. And the financial matrix is the least obvious version of slavery. That's why they've decided to go with that one. Because first, they did land slavery. Well, they've always done the labor slavery, but they had a monopoly on land. But then craftsmen 
and America was discovered, and craftsmen kind of screwed that whole deal up. You didn't need land to produce candles and masonry and books, and also you didn't need land for that. So their stranglehold on the wealth generation disappeared with the craftsmen, and then definitely disappeared with this discovery of the Americas and all these vast open lands ready for people to flee to. And then slavery, the world kind of, especially the European and American world, kind of said, uh, no, this is not okay, you're not allowed to own people anymore, and so that one kind of went out the window. And then, to get past that one, Marxists kind of were like, well, you sh should own all of your labor. The entrepreneurs are the new slave masters, and you should own all of the labor. Really what they're doing is they're doing sleight of hand of convincing you that the state should own all of your labor. And everyone is owned by the state, a.k.a. the elites. The elites all get to own you. But we're also having a resurgence of the feudalist enslavement with really, really over-regulated housing markets, um, government hoarding land, and just trying to basically force people into paying higher and higher rates to have somewhere to sleep. And then there's the financial matrix, which is what most of us has been talking about, where they can hire you for $12 an hour, and then they can bribe you by saying, oh, we'll give you 15 hour, we'll make the minimum wage 15 an hour. Oh, by the way, we almost doubled the money supply, so we halved your value. And keep racking up those credit card debts. Here's, be more of a consumer. Don't create anything of value. Don't create your own podcast. Um, don't write books, don't start a business, just consume, 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 buy more, buy fancier houses, buy fancier cars, get more in debt, and then pay us interest. And because you're in debt and have interest and a house payment and a car payment and you can't, and you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't quit your job. And because you can't quit your job, you have to accept whatever pay we give you. And we own you now. And I know this episode is going long. But there's one last thing I want to talk about real quick, and that is the six pillars of a freedom market. And the first is consumer sovereignty, open comp, um, being able to purchase what you want. Two, private property. That's also something that I, I know most of the people in America, or mo most of my listeners are in America. I don't know how tax laws work in the other nations, so my apologies for you guys, but you don't own, there's no such thing as private property in America anymore. You pay taxes on your property. AKA, you rent your property from the government, and if you fail to pay your rent, they take your property that you have been renting from them. So there's no such thing as private property anymore. And that's the second pillar, is private property. Third, free competition. More regulations, less competition, big business, happy. Four, voluntary exchange. Five, price systems. So having actual money and then six entrepreneurship. You have to have businesses producing new innovations for people to have better and better markets. And with that, I got to end. There's more to talk about, but I am already way over what I allot for each episode because I know some of you would like the episodes to be longer, but most people would not. So we stick to a set time just like 45 minutes for a movie or for a TV show. And with that, I will see you all next week.